Well, on this Mother's Day, um, we obviously need to celebrate, and I wanted to um, quickly do that because the passage we're in, obviously, this week, uh, I, I tried to make a Mother's Day sermon out of it, and it just didn't work, so um, we're going to... There's this fantasy out there, and I, I think every young mother has it, this fantasy of them in the house, little ones in the living room laying on the floor, quietly playing together, just brotherly and sisterly love happening all over, sharing things just uh, without conflict and kids engaging one another uh, on biblical verses and what they thought about in their quiet times. And then there's this reality where these little darlings shriek at each other and say, mine, and rip things in half and get in fights over whether to watch Bob the Builder or some other childhood show. And between the endless loads of laundry, there's this smell of smoke. And all of a sudden, the cookies that mom forgot she was cooking are burning in the oven. And fed up, she stands in the, at the counter and remembers the days when she had the dream of bringing all of this goodness to the world Ending poverty, ending senseless diseases in the world, and now this. Dirty diapers, burning cookies, and endless loads of laundry. Motherhood can be very thankless. But today, of all days, we should be reminded that it is some of the most foundational kingdom work that there is. You see, mamas bring the gospel to the heathen. (laughs) Second Timothy, the passage we looked at last week, there is something in verse 5 that I don't want, we skip through and I don't want us to miss. Listen to this. Paul's talking to his disciple Timothy and he says, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you which, was first, dwe- which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that is in you as well. That's not by mistake. God uses grandmothers and mothers to bring the gospel to bear upon their children and their grandchildren. So moms today... Thank you. Thank you for the endless, tireless days when you go from sunup to sundown and past sundown, showing us what it means to serve, what it means to put others' interests above your own. And that will connect us to our message today. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so very thankful 
so very thankful for mothers who would serve us and love us even in our sin. Who would continually encourage us to turn toward you. And who would model unconditional love day in and day out. This day, Lord, we pray that you would meet us as we open the word and that you would do a work in our hearts that would turn us outward and upward. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Today we're going to be returning back to the book of Galatians, to a series from bondage to freedom. And we're going to be in the second chapter. And we'll, you, if you want to turn there, I'm going to quickly catch us up. We've had, uh, we took one week out to talk about evangelism and our need to share the gospel boldly. We're going to jump back into Paul's um, argument through the book of Galatians. Now, one thing we have to remember is most of these sermons are, are crafted to stand alone. But they come in the context of this book in a long intentional point-by-point argument of Paul, okay? When we were in the first chapter, the first five verses, Paul looks at the authority that has been given to him as an apostle and the message that has been given to him, and his message is that, the great, that grace comes to us and peace with God through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ alone for the glory of God. And Paul then moves into the next few verses in just absolute astonishment that the Galatians, the Galatian churches would leave that. That they would move on to some distorted uh, gospel that was really no gospel at all. And then the past two weeks ago, we looked at Paul arguing that the true gospel came from Jesus himself and illustrates the effects of that on his life. The persecutor becoming the preacher. And this week, Paul continues this section about his testimony and the defense of the gospel of grace, emphasizing his unity with the original apostles and his eagerness to minister to the poor. And we're going to pour ourselves into that today. So I'm going to back up just a little bit, and I'm going to read a lengthy um, portion of text. I don't want you guys to fall asleep, so if you would, grab your Bible, stand up with me. Let's be active readers this, uh, this day, and we're going to read. Uh, I will read, you follow along, starting in verse 15 of chapter 1. But when he who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles... I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then, three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. And then... I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Now, down to um, chapter 2. Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. 
And it was because of a revelation that I went up and I submitted to them the gospel which I preached among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them or even for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, just as Peter had been to the, to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed as, the pillar, as to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. You may be seated. May God bless the reading of his word. You see, Paul preached in Arabia and Damascus for three years. And after those three years, he took a 15-day furlough, went back to Jerusalem, hung out with Peter and James for a short, very short time, and then it says he went back out to the nations, to the Gentile world for 14 years. It seems here that when in verse 15 and 16, when God was pleased to reveal his son to Paul in a way that was absolutely miraculous, it had an effect on Paul. You see, God revealed his son to Paul and the effect was that he took the gospel of grace to the nations. Something drastically changed. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago, um, very in depth. So here's my question to you today that I want to filter through everything we talk about. Why did God graciously reveal his son to you? Why? God did reveal his son to you, and the effect is what? What is it? The American dream? What is it? Why did God reveal his son to you? You see, the gospel should turn us away from self and should turn us outward. This is exactly what happened to Paul. He didn't go to 101 Bible studies to learn certain things. 
oftentimes we spend way too much time thinking about us and not enough thing, thinking about those God has called us to reach. How many of us are settling for Christianity that revolves around catering to ourselves when the central message of Christianity is actually about abandoning self? If you look at Jesus' teaching in Mark chapter 8, he says this, and he summoned the multitude with his disciples and he said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel shall save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For, whatever, for whoever is ashamed of me and my word, words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. In a world that prizes in, in promoting oneself, Jesus shows up and says, crucify yourself. Crucify yourself. Better yet, Jesus says, how about I will crucify myself and you come with me and be crucified with me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a theologian in World War II era, said when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. What is the effect of the gospel on you? Is it your passion? Is it your occupation? Does it turn you away from you to others? Or have you distorted the gospel somehow and made it all about you? Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you believe that? Do you believe it? Do you really believe it? You can answer, it's fine, yes. Do you believe that when one of our far-flung families in Istanbul, Turkey, shares the gospel over coffee to a Turk or a Kurd, and God is pleased to reveal himself to them, and through faith they believe the gospel, that at that very moment, their whole eternal destiny changes? Do you believe that? Do you believe that also... Those that are in Italy, those that are in Africa, those that are in Afghanistan, India, Uzbekistan, China, Thailand, Indonesia, and Papua New Guinea, when they call on the name of the Lord, that they will be saved as well. Do you believe that? That is why North Wakers are all over this map. Why? 
We corporately believe that. We believe that when God calls you out of darkness into light, he wants to do something with you. So we're committed to calling, equipping, and sending people around the world. And we will continue to do that. God has graciously revealed his son to you. Are you willing to ask why? And more importantly, what? What am I to do? What about, you know, that's great. We get all, we'd love to hear the stories like we did from Paul about India and different things like that. And we want to keep that focused. But what about the twenty to 30,000 people that live in Wake Forest? What about those folks? What about the people across the street and around the corner? Do you really believe that God would graciously reveal himself to them through you? Do you believe that? I'm, I'm reading parts of a book right now. I just picked it up and it's killing me. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share some quotes today. This book is um, written by Pastor David Platt. It's called Radical. Listen to this. He says, The price is centrally high for people who do not know Christ and who live in a world where Christians shrink back from self-denying faith and settle into self-indulging faith. While Christians choose to spend their lives fulfilling the American dream instead of giving their lives to proclaiming the kingdom of God, literally billions in need of the gospel remain in the dark. Now let me confess something to you. I don't know what this means for me. I don't know. This week's been really hard for me. I don't know what the applications long term are of this, but I know something has to change. And I know I have to be willing to ask the question, what and why? Why did you save me? Why did you reveal yourself to me, God? And what do you want me to do? Well, you have not been called to Paul's apostolic ministry. That was a specific ministry for Paul. Make no mistake, you have been called to a proclamational faith. If you need proof, here's the passage for you. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you are chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That's you, the church. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people. But now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy. But now you have received mercy. The gospel must turn us outward. Gospels, the gospel's nature, natural trajectory, just naturally, is outward and upward. Ephesians would say that the manifold wisdom of God is to be made known through what? The church, you, 
me, us. So that brings us to the importance of why Paul fought so hard for the unity and purity of the gospel. Back to our passage. You see, Paul went back to Jerusalem and he makes it very clear. He says, by a revelation. Not not a summons by the other apostles, not because of pressure from other people. This man was out preaching the gospel to the Gentile world for 14 years. He wasn't coming back just because of some personal pressure of somebody. He came back because God was doing something. And Christ called him to go back and to connect with the other existing apostles. If you haven't picked up on it yet through the path, God is at work. He is divinely unfolding a plan in Paul's life and yours as well. So Paul goes to Jerusalem, and what does he do? He takes a Gentile companion with his Gentile gospel. Titus was the very poster boy of the gospel of grace. Not works. Grace. Grace to your neighbor who's from another land. Have you walked through your neighborhood and just looked at the different nationalities and different ethnic groups that are actually represented just in your little microcosm? God has seen fit to bring the nations to us. I wonder what we should do about that. Titus was the living, breathing example, illustration of the power of the gospel. And he was not compelled or swayed in any way to be circumcised. Which these false brothers were trying to lead trying to subvert the gospel from within the church. And the gospel sets us free from bondage. You were dead in your sin, but God made you alive in Christ. He separated you from the bondage of that sin in order that you might be free. And the gospel sets us free from self. It sets us free from cultural um, demands and rules. It sets us free in order that we can live life in radical submission and obedience to Jesus. That's it. The false teachers came into the church and were leading people astray. And Paul would not have any of it. Now, while today it seems absolutely ridiculous to us that someone would insist that a person be circumcised in order to have saving faith, it sounds crazy. But Satan still continues to worm his way into churches founded on the gospel to, to subvert them from the inside out. Little distortions, little letting go, 
and the whole thing goes away. Men in every generation and era have tried to add something to God's completed work of salvation in Christ. Whatever it is, Jesus plus mass, Jesus plus water baptism, Jesus plus good works, Jesus plus charismatic experience. Once again, Paul's argument is this. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. You cannot add anything to the saving work of Christ because it kills everything. And Paul knew it, and that's why he was not for a moment distracted. Our hope is really built on nothing less, and should I say nothing more, than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. That's it. No more. In church history, in the time of the Reformation, Luther was fighting some of the same battles, and he said this, For the issue before us is grave and vital. It involves the death of the Son of God, who, by the will and command of the Father, became flesh, was crucified, died for the sins of the world. If faith yields on this point, the death of the Son of God will be in vain. Then it is only a fable that Christ is the Savior of the world. Then God is a liar, for he has not lived up to his promises. Therefore, our stubbornness on this issue is pious and holy, for by it we are striving to preserve the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to keep the truth of the gospel. If we lose this, we lose God, Christ, all the promises, faith, righteousness, and eternal life. And that's exactly why Paul would not move. So my question to you today is this. Once again, if you look at verse 5, Paul says that he does not yield in subjecting to them for even an hour or some say a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. He's speaking to the Galatian churches. He's speaking to the Gentile churches and to us. We are the Gentile church. And because Paul did not waver on this at all, We are benefactors because we have the gospel, the truth of the gospel. And the responsibility to protect that falls on us. It falls on us. We've been given a beautiful gift. So, can you distinguish the subtle subversive distortions that enter your world every day of the gospel. When Satan whispers into your ear, mom, that what you're doing at home with those children is not important, that for the li- you're just done with the same old discipline factors, Can you say, I'm sinful just like them? Sinner saved by grace. And because I have received mercy, I will give you mercy. Can you say that? 
or does the culture that says, you need a break today. You need something else because this life is not the way it's supposed to be. Just enough truth in there to sway you. What about you, dads? What about the lie that bringing in more and more money into your home is all that you're supposed to do? What about the lie that somehow blessing your children with worldly goods will lead them to a better life? Are you supposed to provide for your family? Absolutely. But not just money. You're to provide and proclaim the gospel of grace and mercy to your children, to your wives, to your home. And sometimes that means walking away from something that distracts from that objective. Sometimes it means forfeiting a business deal because right now you need to proclaim the Christ boldly to a coworker, And you might lose that account. Why is it so important that we get the gospel right? Because it is a daily temptation to change it in order for us to live in comfort, to avoid suffering, and not to offend anybody. The gospel we export around the world and across the street is life or it's death. It either is the gospel or it is not. Any adjustment to justification by faith, Paul calls calls a damnable offense. Justification, the divine act of God to take humans who are sinful and worthy of condemnation and make them acceptable before his holiness and righteousness by grace alone, through faith alone, on the basis of Christ's blood and righteousness alone for the glory of God alone. That is it. And we have to pause because if anything, if we can learn anything from verses 4 through 9, they teach us that there is only one gospel, that all the apostles and the whole of Scripture present one consistent gospel, where there are certainly differences in style, emphasis, um, due to different spheres and audiences Peter to the Jews, Paul to the Gentiles. One gospel. The substance is always the same. Paul and Peter had different, a different commission to different people groups. But the message was the same. And the extension of the hand of fellowship of the apostles to Paul was this. It was the unifying of the church around one message for one mission. If that doesn't happen, if Peter says to Paul, no, 
you're preaching the right gospel, just add circumcision. The whole thing blows up. The whole thing blows up and you and I don't sit here today. But God is working out a redemptive plan in history. And this is one of those marked, just amazing points of church history. Where Peter and Paul shake hands and say, yes, this is it. This is it. So... The gospel of grace binds you and I together with other people who believe in the same gospel. Binds the church, unites the church around one message and one mission. Now, before we get too far along, before we end this, please look at verse 10 with me. So they unify around this message, this gospel message that Christ died for our sins and was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then the apostles ask Paul to remember the poor. And he says, this is the very thing I was eager to do. The ministry to the poor was... It's amazing that it comes in the context of this passage because it's right there with the purity and the unity of the gospel. It's right there. What's the first thing on the apostle's mind after, okay, we're, we're centered on the gospel, we're right there, message is the same, we confer, we shake hands and fellow, yep, we're on the same team, let's roll, remember the poor. And this is the one that has crushed me this week. It was important enough for the apostles to mention the ministry to the poor alongside the purity of the gospel. Why is this? I believe once again because this is the fruit of the Son of God being revealed in us. The gospel will have an effect. You see, Jesus teaches that anyone who has truly been touched by grace will extend mercy to those in need. But love your enemies, he says, and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. And that the gospel must have effect. Jesus says in Matthew 25 that God will judge whether we have justifying faith or not by the way that we serve the hungry, the thirsty, those without clothing, strangers, prisoners. He says this, the king will say to those on his right hand, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. It is absolutely vital that we destroy the view that we have that we're sold every week 
More, 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 more. The gospel turns us outward. Proverbs 14.31 says, He who opposes, who oppresses the poor taunts his maker or reproaches his maker. But he who is gracious to the needy honors him. Paul was eager. Where is our eagerness? When you evaluate your spiritual life, what are you most eager to do? Where does the eagerness factor lie? Where is it? Getting together with your brothers and sisters for Bible study, I'm all for it. I'm the discipleship pastor. Okay, I'm all for that. I think that's great. But when we're more interested in starting new Bible studies for Christians Then we are wanting to work in the community, figuring out ways for our church to minister to the poor here. We might want to reevaluate. Because those Bible studies we have already are not having effect. We're not walking in obedience. We're not being turned outward and upward. Why is it that because Haiti is no longer on the news, we don't have anybody who's figuring out how to mobilize teams from our church to go down there consistently and minister to the poor and bring the gospel. Nobody. It's off our radar. We don't want to look over there. We don't want to look around the corner to the neighborhood we don't even drive through. So the question is, why are we spending so much time and resources and effort on us? Once again, from David Platt's book, the price of our non-discipleship is high for those without Christ. It is high also for the poor of this world. Consider the cost when Christians ignore Jesus' command to sell their possessions and give to the poor. And instead choose to spend their resources on better comforts, larger houses, nicer cars, and more stuff. Consider the cost when these Christians gather in churches and choose to spend millions of dollars on nice buildings to drive up to, cushioned chairs to sit in, and endless programs to enjoy for themselves. Consider the cost for the starving multitudes who sit outside the gate of contemporary Christian affluence. The gospel does not promote you to mere reflection. The gospel requires a response. In the process of hearing Jesus, you are compelled to take an honest look at your life, your family, and your church, and not just ask, what is he saying, but also ask, what shall I do? So I don't know any other way than to close this time in prayer in asking that very thing. Jesus has spoken to us today. He has revealed himself through his word. The question is, what will we do? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are confronted today 
by the transformation of Paul and his testimony that the gospel may, must bring a response in our life an obedience to the way we walk and live and it is in complete opposition to the culture in which we live in. Lord, today would you have your way with our heart and our mind? Would you have your way with us that we would live differently? That we would take the gospel to the nations, proclaiming the gospel of grace across the street and around the world. And that we would be eager to minister to the poor. Lord, we have much to repent of. And may this day be the day that we repent and we turn outward and upward. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.